Um, there are a few folks that still sort of are arriving and things. And if if you see somebody who needs a, needs a spot, would you squeeze in and make sure they can get one next to you? Um, if you are, if you guys are looking for some seats, there are a few right here in the middle in front of me that would work. Um, and not just this front row, but the first two or three. So. Um, I've been asked, and I thought I would just uh, get this cleared up right now. Um, I was not in a bar fight. <laughs> I did not get this nose in a, in a duel or, a, or a, a, some kind of a tussle. There's a good term for it. I was playing with my grandson. Maybe there's a time when you should stop doing that, but I haven't come to that time yet. It didn't break anything permanently. And there are wounds that are healing, and there are impressions that are left. And I think I'd rather continue to leave the impressions and let the wounds heal. And what I did was I was playing with him on the playground, and we were, he was playing uh, Catch Me, which is a favorite of five- and six-year-olds. And so he was running around the playground, and I was staying off the playground equipment. I was just going around the outside and going around the outside and going around the outside. And then I got the smart idea that I would just jump up on the playground equipment and chase him across. That was my first mistake. (laughs) Deciding to do that up the chain link ladder that goes up was my second mistake. Catching my foot on the top rung of the chain link ladder was my third mistake. You know how life slows down for you when you're about to hit the ground? I remember as I was going off the step on the other side of the little platform on the top, trying to get my hands in front of me, I I said to myself, I'm not going to be able to stop myself. Eventually, the platform stopped me. And so that is how about a half hour before Wedgwood Trio started last night, I uh, ended up with uh, the marks you see and the ones you don't. And the aspirin I took before I started preaching. (laughs) So if you see me limping later, it's because the medicine wore off. But uh, I just wanted you to know, and I decided to tell you all at once. So if you see somebody who came in after this, just tell them, yeah, he already told the story. I'll explain it to you later. All right? Um, We are continuing in our discussion of Ecclesiastes together. And uh, as we do, we're into chapter 9. And I told you last week, uh, Solomon spends the first portion of this book, one to six or seven, depending on how you divide it, really kind of dealing with the harsh realities as he looks back on his life and the things he's discovered. He said, I've tried everything there is under the sun, and I keep finding out that I I can't fill the hole that is in me with anything that I've done or tried. I've tried drugs and alcohol and wine and women and song, and I have tried building and doing great things and getting lots of books and getting a Ph.D., and none of it has worked. Everything was empty. Everything was vanity of vanities. Everything was soap bubbles, soap bubbles, a chasing after the wind. Somewhere around the middle of chapter 7, moving through the rest of the book, it feels to me like he's beginning to spend more time explaining things. And we talked last week about chapter 8, how he talks about the big questions that people ask. That big questions that people ask. Why do, why do dishonorable people, when they die, in the very town where they've been dishonorable, in the very town where they've moved in and out of the worship service with everyone else, where everyone in the town knows they're a sinner and a horrible person, why do they get honored when they die? 
And you sat at some of those funerals and said, this is not the guy I know. He said, why is it that punishment is not meted out immediately when something bad happens? When somebody does something bad, why don't the heavens open? God say, enough of you. He says, when punishment is not immediately given, then people think it's all right to do bad things. And what about the good things? Or what about the good people who bad things happen to? He said, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And none of this makes any sense to me. But he said, so I recommend fun. I love that statement. So look at all these things that you can't figure out in the world. So you know what I recommend? I recommend fun. I read it to you from the New uh, Living Translation last week. I recommend fun. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the people around you. That's what we're going to come back to again today. Last week he said, you are never going to fully understand God. You can stand back, look horizon to horizon. You're never going to fully understand God. But this you can know. That if your life is held in God's hand, your eternity is secure. And the things that happen in this place are less impactful. Once your eternity is securely held in the hand of God. So this week, as we come to our our friend Solomon, he comes back to another one of those universal questions. He says the same destiny ultimately happens to everyone, whether righteous, wicked, good, or bad. Everybody is doing it. What is it that everybody is doing? Slowly moving towards that headstone. Everybody is is doing it, right? My mom used to say this to me. She said, if, if everybody, I, I, my mom would say, you know, I, I would give the excuse, I've done something wrong, I've done this or I've done that, and I would say, um, well, everybody's doing it. Everybody does that. My brother did it, my sister did it, or I would give some excuse saying somebody else was doing it. And my mom would say this, if everybody were jumping off, or if your brother or your sister or your cousin or your nephew or your friend down the street were jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, would you do it too? As a nine-year-old, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. As a little kid, you're thinking, what what does that have to do with this? Everybody's eating cookies, not jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Everybody's getting ice cream or the right tennis shoes or whatever, but not jumping off the bridge. What does that have to do with anything? Just because everybody's doing it, does that mean I have to do it too? Well, in this case, everybody's doing it, and you are too. You and I are all marching slowly towards, hopefully slowly, toward that last day, that last breath, that last moment. And Solomon is standing on the side of life where he sees that he has fewer days ahead than he has had behind. Some of us have crossed that juncture. Some of us crossed it and didn't realize it. And then all of a sudden it snuck up on us one day. We passed by somewhere in 40 or 45 or somewhere back there. We passed it by, and we were just thinking, I'm, yeah, I'm good, I'm young, I'm 40, I'm 45. And then suddenly something happened. You fell down on your face on the playground, and you busted open your nose. And you went, I have fewer days ahead than I have behind. <laughs> you went, oh, my goodness, this is a day for discovery. Solomon has come to that place. He is reflective in this book. He's recognizing that he has fewer days ahead than he has had behind. It's interesting to me that during a, during a presidency, this sort of idea gets compacted. 
It's a very interesting thing. Four years, eight years. You notice that when a president, especially a president, it seems to me, who's been reelected for a second term and knows his second term is about up, you know that about this time you're going to start hearing about that president's legacy, right? Right? And you start hearing about, well, what is the legacy of this presidential election? What is the le- le- legacy of this president? And they start thinking about that. That whole life's legacy gets crammed down into those eight years. In those last two years, six Uh, seventh and eighth year, they start saying, okay, what am I going to do? What is the lasting legacy? And some outlandish things get done in those last couple of years. But it's all in trying to establish, build some sort of lasting legacy. They know their presidency is about over. They're not going to get another shot at this. And so they're trying to sort out something that people will remember them for. See, our friend Solomon is looking back on his life and asking, what is my legacy? What a legacy, the things I've done. I built the temple. That wonderful retaining wall that holds up the whole of the mountainside. I built that. It's still there. That's, by the way, his remaining building legacy is the wailing wall. What is it that is lasting that I will not just hand on to someone who will not appreciate it? What is my legacy? As we talk today about what everybody's doing I want to get to the kernel of that for all of us. What is the legacy that we will have? It seems so wrong, according to Solomon, that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. We've talked a little bit about Solomon's story. We've talked a little bit about what it was like. He was a king not by choice but by selection, right? He was wealthy because he inherited wealth. He multiplied it and multiplied it and multiplied it, but he never had to work a day in his life in order to be a wealthy man and one of the wealthiest men in his time. He built great things because he felt he had to. His father started this great building project known as the temple and left it for him to finish. Is the temple really his or is the temple David? Is the throne really his or is the throne David's? Is the wealth really his or is the wealth David's? Is the identity really his or is he just David's kid? When you look back on the kings of Israel, do you say Solomon, the wisest and best king who Israel ever had? Or does all of Israel look back and say David, the best king Israel ever had? And all then there was his kid. What's that kid's name again? It begins with an S. Not Samuel, not Saul, but something like that. He was a really smart kid, though. Went to Yale, graduated, summa cum laude. Went on to, to, to Harvard Business School. Got his Ph.D. He was a really bright guy. I can't remember his name, though. David, though, that was a king. That was a guy who got to be king the old-fashioned way. He earned it. Solomon is coming to the end of his life having lived under the shadow and in the returns of someone else's life. And now he's looking back at his legacy. And he's asking about it. What is my story? What do I have to offer? Solomon at his core says... The already twisted evil people choose their own mad course because they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway.
Our friend Solomon is answering this, the musical question, right? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? We keep coming back to this. Is that all there is, my friend? If that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all. Is that not the question of the modern culture? Is that not the question our culture keeps throwing in your own face? Isn't the answer yes if you believe that you climbed out of the primordial slime? If you are just an accident of biology in some pool 20 million years ago, then that's all there is. Under the sun, Solomon says, this is all there is. When Solomon uses that phrase, under the sun, I believe what he's trying to to describe for us is life in a sinful world. Life on a sinful planet. The humanist says, or the hedonist says, pleasure is all that matters. Pleasure is all that matters. If I'm having a good time, that's all that matters. If it tastes good, if it feels good, if I want it, I'm going to go for it. The ultimate statement, if it feels good, do it. And if it feels bad, don't do it, right? Don't do it. It's all right. We know he's listening, right? The humanist, on the other hand, says, I'm all that matters. I'm really all that matters. You could throw in the Epicurean who says, my taste buds seem to be all that matters. The focus on myself is the focus of our culture, and it's very easy for us to bleed over into that, to start saying, hey, hey, I'm, I'm the one that really matters in this, this decision here. I'm the real one that really matters in this marriage here. I'm the one that really matters in this relationship here. I'm the one that really matters on this committee here. I'm the one that really matters in this church here. I'm the one that really matters when my wallet is addressed. I'm the one that really matters in the length of all this life that I'm living. I'm the one that matters. And if I'm the one that matters, then what happens to you? You don't really matter. You see, we have, we have embraced so completely the idea that we're all that really matters in this culture that it creeps into our lives. I'm the only one that matters on this freeway full of cars. I have places to go. I have things to do. Get out of my way. You're taking up my space. I'm the one that really matters. Aren't I? See, here's our problem because what we're left with is I don't matter. If I'm not the only one that matters, then maybe I don't matter at all. And if I don't matter at all, then 
what matters? You see the struggle of living under the sun? The philosophy doesn't work. The philosophy that living under the sun brings us, this idea that that we've been developed here on this planet over eons of time and that there is no God and there is no heaven and there is no reason and there is no value and there is no love and there is no grace and there is no compassion puts us all in a place that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Solomon is standing looking forward to his funeral making preparations for his burial. He's gathered together the people he wants to be there. He, he knows who he wants to be the speaker. He's, he's spoken to the person. He's saying, here's, here's the kind of things I'd like done at my funeral. Here's what I'd like to have happen when I die. He's gone to the, to the, to the granite shop and he's, he's, he's spoken to the person who's going to carve the headstone about what's going to be on it. Solomon's making preparations for the day when he is no more. But he keeps looking back at what he's accomplished, what he hasn't accomplished. And he's trying to sort out his life. Solomon's discovering his own story kind of toward the end. Chapter 7 and verse 2, this is why Solomon says, Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You read that and that just sounds morose, doesn't it? Doesn't it just sound like, oh my goodness, what kind of guy is this? What a depressed guy. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In chapter 9, verse 2, it's the same destiny, destiny, destiny. I get paid to preach. It's the same destiny, ultimately, that awaits everyone. You know what Solomon says in the second half of verse 2? He says, because death happens to everyone, and at the place of mourning, we consider it. When we understand our own mortality, we weigh life more carefully. When we understand our own mortality, each day might become precious to us. Each interaction might become precious to us. If all we do is go from one festival to another, it encourages us to just spend our life frivolously. If we go to a few funerals, it sobers us up, maybe, maybe literally. Basic life is a three-act story. We're born, and we spend the first act of our life in growth and discovery. Isn't it fun to be with a child? Because they're spending their life discovering things. They're wandering from moment to moment. They're picking up the most mundane things. I, with my grandson before I crashed and burned yesterday, we were walking through the park. And the leaves from fall have been gathering on the sidewalk. And as we're walking along through the park, he's picking up leaves. And there's, there's thousands of leaves. I'm kind of hoping he's not going to get carried away with this thing. And he, but he's picking them up. And he seems to be, I, I started noticing what he was picking up. There were a lot of the leaves that were bright, well, not bright, but an intense red. They were just an intense red, and he was collecting the red ones. He was going along the sidewalk, a red one here and a red one over there and a red one over here, and he had a, a stack of leaves. He, he was on his way to play 
And he stopped to discover the leaves that had fallen on the sidewalk and gather a few up. And he, he wanted to take them back. I said, are you going to take those home? Are you going to take them back to the house? Yes. And I said, okay, put them here on the table so we can get them on our way back. Let's go play. This was one of my early mistakes. Should have let the kid collect leaves. I wasn't going to get hurt when he did that. But the joy of looking at those leaves is lost on most of us. The first act of your life is birth, growth, discovery. Look at the world. Open your eyes. Enjoy what's in front of you. And when we move through our lives, we lose some of this joy. I think it's why we travel. I think it's why people travel. Because we go to another place we haven't seen before. And seeing a new place gives us that sense of discovery. That sense of there are still new things to do and be and find. I, 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 I just... Next time AAA sends out the magazine to your house that has the 10 coolest places in California, go see them all. If you haven't seen them all, catch a couple of them. Take a couple pictures. Take a friend to enjoy them with. Take a child to discover them with. Act one, growth and discovery. Act number two, finding meaning and stability. You know what this is like, right? Um, Donald Miller in his book, uh, a million miles in a thousand years talks about finally realizing that he was living a fairly empty life as a single man. He lived a life of imagination. He lived a life where he was in his own head all the time, making up stories but not really living. He had no family. He had no spouse. He was, he was worried about this life that he was living, which was basically pretend. This moment of, of finding meaning and stability almost always includes finding family and finding connections. And even if that is not a spouse, it's returning to those people, connecting with those people whom you love, finding people to pour out your love upon. You begin to discover that when you love someone, meaning develops. You start to discover the stability that is only available as you grow to care about other people. You know, your, your bank account, as you are repeatedly told on the radio, could be taken by somebody at any moment who steals your identity, right? Guy went to bed with $300,000 in the bank, woke up the next morning, it was all gone. That's pretty disastrous for most of us, I would think. Probably wouldn't bother Bill Gates a lot, but to me, that would be a major problem. Other things in our world and in our life are fairly transient but the real stability, the real anchors of our lives are the relationships we discover, right? The people that we spend our time with and our affections on. And then act three, the weakening body causes a person to be besieged. I like this word, besieged by reflection. Can I suggest that if you get to act three, before the body weakens, you're ahead of the game. If you get to act three before you're forced to get to act three, you're ahead of the game. If you can start in your life to reflect, to look back, to look on what you might do, look at living a life that might have worthy of reflection. If you, if you get to act three before the grinders being out of your head, before the snow starts to gather on the roof, before the knees start to shake, as Solomon says, if you get to act three early, you're ahead of the game. 
You get to start looking at the whole world from that wider perspective we talked about last week. That that wisdom of age is brought on by the gathering of information. That the slowness of thought is not slowness of mind. It's the gathered information being sorted through before the answer is given. The wise person whom a child walks up to and says, guess what's in my hand? Thinks a minute. When a, when a person puts their hands, when the child puts their hands behind their back and they say, which hand is it in? The wise person stops for a moment. When we're younger, we just say that one. You don't see grandparents just saying that one very often. The grandparent stops for a minute. And they have a conversation with the child. And they realize this isn't about which hand the rock is in. This is about the eyes that are looking up, hopefully, to your face. And so they slow down the computer a minute and sort through the gathered information because they've figured out, sometimes because they're forced to, that this moment is important. Solomon's in the third act. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, he says in chapter 12. Before the days of trouble come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Can I rush you on to the third act in your life? Even if you're 25. Yeah, you can still discover, you can still find stability and meaning and all those things. But can you start a little, a little action of reflection? Can you start journaling if you haven't already been doing it? If, can, you, can you take a few moments at the end of the day, look back and take stock on what's gone? Can you look into the eyes of a child who wants your attention and give it to them? Take a moment and move your life into that reflective space. You will be greatly rewarded for being there. Get ahead of this game a little. Teach your children to learn to reflect. It will serve them well for their entire lives. In all of this demise talk, all of this discovery of, okay, we're all going to die and we might as well get used to that, there is a hope that we must understand. Solomon says, there is hope only for the living. I don't want you to take this negatively. There's hope only for the living. Better is a live dog than a dead lion. Right? We look at that and we think, again, there's Solomon, Mr. Glass Half Empty, There is hope. There's hope for all those who are still breathing. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is still approachable. So long as you take breath. Your eternity can be grasped in your last breath. But oh, don't waste the breath between here and there. Get hold of eternity. It will give so much more meaning to your day-to-day-to-day-to-day existence. It will give you something to reflect on. It will give you some lenses to see through. It will give so much more meaning to the things that are meaningful. And it will allow you to lay aside the things that you cannot deal with, that you cannot change. It will allow you to understand what's of value and what's not. It will rearrange your thinking. But God on the throne of your life changes everything.
So don't say, oh, man, a dead dog, a dead lion, a live dog. Don't, get, don't drag yourself into that gutter. Stop at the word. But there is hope. So long as you live, there is hope. Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. The living at least know that they will die. But what do the dead know? Nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying is all what? Gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on the earth. I would be remiss as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor to not pause a moment and say, that's the state of the man who is dead. That's the state of the woman who is dead. Your Ouija board, it's a fake that the devil uses to mess with people's heads. Seance, it's a fake that the devil uses to get inside people's hearts. If your great-grandma appears to you in your living room, run! This is not a time for a conversation. Go away, get someplace else, go pray somewhere, but get out of there. Because the Bible says the dead know nothing and have they, they have no part with anything on the earth. If some dead person shows up, it ain't them. The devil even can impersonate people who give you good advice. And he'd be happy to give you good advice for a while to get you hooked into this horrible deception. Your great-grandmother isn't looking at you from heaven. When I was a little boy, I used to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I was probably, I don't know, Four, three, four when I was taught that prayer. And that prayer always ended the same way after my fourth year as a little kid. After I was four. Somewhere in that fourth year, I don't, I don't remember when. I know I could reach back into the annals of our family and find out. Somewhere in that fourth year, my grandfather died. And I would end that prayer with a little prayer to my grandfather who was looking down on me. Here's what I have to tell you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the dead know nothing. So I want to get, I know I'm taking a side road here, but it's, this is really significant because the devil uses this all the time to manipulate people. You have to be aware of what the Bible has to say. Because there, there is security in the knowledge and the truth that Scripture is giving you. And there is the avoidance of a great deal of sorrow and pain. When you go by the palm reader next week, pray that, that God will interrupt any real connection they have with the devil. And that God will speak to them directly. We don't know what they got caught up into this, whether it's just the money, whether they know it's a fake or not. 
but we owe them our prayers. The opportunity for God to intercede on their behalf. There's a lot more that's said about this in Scripture, but I just want you to get this kernel nailed down solidly. This is one of those places in Scripture where it's pretty clear they no longer have any part with anything here on the earth. They're not rattling chains in anybody's attic. They're not moving furniture around somebody's house. Somebody got killed in the basement of this house and it's haunted. No, no. If anything weird is going on here, it's because the devil's been busy. Grandma isn't still moving stuff around. So we clear? Can we move on? The living know that they will die. And if they will recognize that, they can get ahead of the game. The living know that their life will end. And if they will recognize that, they can get ahead of this three-act play. Just simply know that there will come an end to your life and start living like you wanted a legacy of eternity. So here's Solomon's response. I love this guy. I'm, I'm beginning to love this response. I used to not like it much at all because I know that this is one of those things that, uh, that gets brought up at AA. Solomon says, the living know that they will die, the dead know nothing. So go ahead, eat your food with joy, drink your wine with a happy heart. For God approves of this. He's not saying God approves of you getting drunk. He's saying God approves of you enjoying your life. God approves of you enjoying your food. He approves of you enjoying your clothing. Ladies. Before you get ahead of me, this also can be disruptive. Just as that previous one gets quoted at AA, I think at Clothes Shoe Buyers Anonymous, this other one's going to get quoted. There should be. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Now, if you read this in the King James, it's going to be a little more uh, close to the original. It's putting oil in your hair. The point of this is that you're going to smell good, you're going to look good. Dress nicely, live well, enjoy your life. Why? God approves of you doing this. He put you on the planet and he wants you to have fun. I love the translation in the previous chapter when Solomon is saying all these horrible things keep happening in the earth. All these horrible things keep happening in the earth. I recommend having fun. Food, fun, fellowship. It is not a bad thing for you to enjoy your life. And if you stand back and look at the eternal perspective as you walk through today, and you can know that God embraces you and He loves you and He's for you and your eternity is secure in His hand, then you can sit down at your meal, look up into the heavens and say, Thank you. Enjoy the flavors, enjoy the impact, enjoy the taste, enjoy your life. It kills me that we have a whole group of people out there who said, if it tastes good, spit it out. 
enjoy what God has given you to enjoy. Live happily with the woman and for the sake of modern mankind and for the sake of an understanding that is not just male-centric. He means either gender. Enjoy, live happily with the spouse that you love. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever you do, do it well. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your work. Put your heart into these things. Live your life. You must be present to win. So many of us live with yesterday as the only thing we think about. So many of us live with tomorrow as the only thing we think about. And we miss today. You must be present to win. You must be present to experience your life. You must spend the moment in the day looking up to God and thanking Him for the gifts He's given you. Knowing that the work He's given you is a blessing from God. Knowing that the food on your table is a blessing from God. Knowing that the people in your life are a blessing from God. Be present in your life. Don't skip days. Man, don't skip days. We spend Monday waiting for Tuesday, Tuesday waiting for Wednesday, Wednesday waiting for Thursday, Thursday waiting for Friday. Sabbath finally comes and we go, bad that, glad that's gone. Oh, man. God must sit on his throne and say, stop longing for tomorrow. Live today. Live today. Live today. Solomon says, man, I wish I could get some of those days back. You don't want to be standing there arranging for your own funeral at the end of your life, sitting there with the guy who's going to carve something on your headstone, describing the flowers and the things you want and recognizing that little dash is all you get. That you missed all the moments that fill that gap. What do people constantly say at the end of their lives? I wish I had lived. One way or another, they say, I wish I had lived. I wish I'd taken the opportunity to love my family more. I wish I'd taken the moments and savored them more. I wish I'd really embraced my life. Every one of us knows that we are marching on to that last day if Jesus doesn't come first. I hope he does. I, I, I don't want to be on the layaway plan. I've never liked the layaway plan. I didn't like it when my mom laid away things for me for Christmas. That layaway plan just meant I had to wait. <laughs> to a kid, you don't have any idea that's the way your parents are affording Christmas. I want to be there, front row, when the heavens part, and a cloud appears on the horizon about the size of a man's hand, and it begins to expand, and it begins to grow, and the glory in it begins to brighten and shine across the face of the earth. I want to be there when the trumpet sounds, when graves start popping up all around us, opening and people glorified by God come pouring out of them and begin lifting toward the heavens. I want to be there when that happens, when the transformation of me, myself, happens in a moment 
in the twinkling of an eye, when the dead are raised and the mortal puts on immortality, I want to be there for that. But I don't want to spend so much time thinking about that last day that I miss my present day. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have a tradition of longing for the second coming. It's not a bad tradition. It's a great tradition. But don't long for that or worry about that so much that you miss the presence of God that is in your life. The kingdom of God is among you. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I have come that you might experience what life was meant to be like. When you lay aside your sin and you start following me, it's going to be a good day for you. Get up in the morning expectantly. Get up in the morning planning on God giving you a good day. Get up in the morning in recognition that God is on his throne and that everything's okay because Jesus died for you. same book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, Donald Miller says this, if the point of life is the same as the point of the story, the point of life is character transformation. And yes, we can talk about the character that you take to heaven, but I also want to just talk about you. You being and becoming what God has planned. You being and becoming the character you wanted to be in the story of your life. Solomon looks back at his life and knows that he lived most of it under the sun and very little of it under Jesus. And in that recognition, he longs to have some of those days back. Can you live a life worthy of the legacy that God wants for you? Oh, sure you can. But it has to happen by living today. Your life isn't tomorrow. Your life isn't yesterday. Your life is today. I know I've been telling you this now for a couple of weeks, and I might tell you for another one. A few weeks ago, I told you about my friend Greg Krieger, who occupies this same space, this same pulpit on Sunday mornings here in this church. Went to visit his church, missed the whole service. I know what now and what it's like to come in when you don't know when times when the service is supposed to happen. You walk in at the end thinking you're somewhere in the middle and realize it's over. And Pastor Krieger told me this. He said, This is what I preached on today. We preachers, we love to share what we're preached on today to the, with other preachers. He said, I talked about I share this with you. I talked about Elijah passing his mantle on to Elisha. And his point is mine for you right now. You only get to live this life. You only get to live this day. Live this day. Live this life. 
wrapped in the arms of Jesus, covered by his grace, your hand firmly in his. So that when you close your eyes, you can pass your mantle on to the next generation. The legacy of Solomon is this book. The legacy of Solomon is a story of a great love. The legacy of Solomon is a collection of wise sayings. I hope to see Solomon in heaven because I don't think the man understood what an impact he would have. You and I will never know when we close our eyes. But we cannot attain to the life worth giving to the next generation without being present. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so far away, so often from even recognizing that you're busy working in our hearts and lives. Help us to embrace your leadership today, to embrace your love today to embrace your grace today, to embrace that you are for us, that you made us, that you want to help us. Help us to change the story of our own lives so that we might tell the story of your grace, your love, and your passion to our neighbors, our friends, and those around us, sometimes even speaking words. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go away, I want to speak to one, one group. Some of you are approaching the end of your life, and what I've said to you today, you've already been thinking about. Don't give up till you take your last breath. If you're lying in a hospital bed waiting for the minute minute when you're dying, pray. Because your prayers will outlive you. The prayers you offer for your children, your grandchildren, the next generation, the generation after that will outlive you. Some of us think since we've crossed that that bridge, we, we know we have fewer days ahead. We're on the wrong side of this thing. We're never on the wrong side so long as we take breath. You can impact Africa and Asia. You can af- impact the world you live in from the hospital bed on your last day. So don't give away days. Keep fighting.